The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This evening, I want to talk about uh, the theme of self and not self. So in a way, uh, this isn't a setup, but it's like that fellow's dissertation project about the relationship between insight meditation and personality structure. It's, it's actually, for many of us, it's a pretty confusing area. And many of us may have meditated and delighted in mindfulness and in developing peace and stability of mind and heard different teachers talking about not-self and said, maybe later I'll look into that topic (laughs) or, you know, I'm not sure what it really means, but I really like mindfulness that I'm sure of. So it's a it's a confusing area on all in all sorts of ways. Um, This is actually uh, from Achan Cha, the great Thai teacher, teacher Jack Kornfield, Achan Sumedha, whom I mentioned. Many of you know his work. Uh, He said this. To say there is a self is not true. To say there is no self is not true. Then what is true? In another tradition, it's said this way, or it's actually, this is a tradition that I got off the internet of Jewish Buddhist humor. (laughs) And it goes this way. The Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says there is no self. So maybe we're off the hook. (laughs) Maybe one more, one more reading just to thicken the plot a little bit. Um, This is from the Buddha. It's, It's actually a famous passage. Uh, the wanderer, Vachagota, approached the Blessed One. I'm reading from the uh, Samyutta Nikaya and said to the Buddha, How is it now, Master Gautama? Is there a self? When this was said, the Blessed One was silent. Then, Master Gautama, is there no self? A second time, the Blessed One was silent. Then the wanderer, Vachagota, departed. And not long after that, uh, his attendant, Ananda, said to the Buddha, Why is it, Venerable One, that when the Blessed One was questioned by the wanderer of Achagota, he did not answer? He basically says that either answer would have confused this person. And I chose not to engender further confusion. This is from the text. If Ananda, when when I was asked, is there a self? I had answered, there is a self. This would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are eternalists, who have a view that the self is eternal. And, and when I was asked by him, is there no self? I had answered, there is no self. This would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are annihilationists, who say that there's no such thing as the self, that everything is flux and so forth. If I had answered either way, the wanderer of Achagata, already confused, would have fallen into greater confusion. 
thinking, it seems that the self I formerly had does not exist now. So I hope that clarifies everything. (laughs) But you get. um, And so let me before trying to resolve it, let me let me thicken it a little bit more to make the issue even a little more difficult. It's pretty clear that all the words that we use around these terms are used in all sorts of different ways. For example, um, the ego. Some people think the ego is a problem. You know, get rid of the ego. The ego is the self-centered quality, it's sometimes said. But also in our culture, as our friend knows from the study of psychology, (laughs) ego is used in a very neutral way just to mean the kind of cohering structures of experience. Self is used in all sorts of ways. The Buddha's sense of self was much more a sense of this uh, eternal, separate being that had control over experience. And even though it's translated as self, it's very different from the way we use the word self. We often use the word self in a more neutral way. But sometimes we use it in a way that really highlights the quality of separation. So the terms are used in different ways. We get contradictory answers to self or not self. My suggestion is that the way to resolve this is experientially and not theoretically. So you can kind of relax a little bit. (laughs) Because part part of us might have been saying... I sure was peaceful when it was meditating or a little more peaceful. And now what is going on with this talk? Self, not self, what's going on? And so what I want to do is explore it in a way which hopefully can bring a little more clarity to what really the Buddha was getting at. And I want to talk some about what the core teachings are, some about how to practice with uh, the sense of self and not self. And then thirdly, what is experience like when the structures of self that are more narrow get transformed and fall away. Because I think that's really what the Buddha is talking about. He's talking about that quality, the way in which um, we can get caught with a sense of self in which I'm here and you're there and I have to manipulate the world and I'm scared and there's separation and there's... uh, You know, I try to grab hold of myself to make myself feel better and so forth. That's a very limited sense of self. And I think that's what's being questioned. But there are ways in which we can actually, through meditative practice, can work through that sense of self. It can take quite some time and can open up to more to what I would call the core radiant qualities of our being, which are the qualities of clarity, awareness, emptiness and compassion and as we work through that sense of self these qualities shine through more that's what I want to cover and try to help to give a little bit of clarity and create a little bit of a map for this very uh, challenging issue which I know that Gil has explored probably quite a number of times so that's that's what I want to do When the Buddha looked at experience, 
he gave us methods and a way of looking at experience which did, which did not have a thick sense of self, which did not have this overlay of I'm here, you're there, here's my experience, um, here, here is this sense of being separate, different, autonomous, and in control of things. And he pointed to, I think, that radiant quality of other qualities of being, which is more pointing towards a sense of interdependence and um, connection and the lack of a, of a really distinct self. And that, I think, is, is the meaning uh, of this teaching of not-self, the deeper meaning. So what he did was he invited us to practice mindfulness. He invited us to look and see if we could come, come closer to direct experience, closer to the direct experience of the different constituents of our experience so that we, as we practice in mindfulness, we learn better. How can I be just with my body experiences? How can I be just with my emotions? How can I be just with my thoughts? Some of you know a very famous passage where another wandering uh, yogi asked him, please give me the teachings in a nutshell. And his answer was more or less, in the seeing, there is only the seeing. Or in the seeing, there is only the seeing. In the hearing, there is only the heard. In the sensing, there is only the sensed. And what that points to is this quality of being with more direct experience and then what we get to do is we get to study the additions to experience. We get to study what's extra. When I sit with my knee pain, is there a voice saying, I don't like this. I want to get rid of this. When I have a particular emotion, am I trying to censor it? And what we learn in mindfulness practice is to be able to stay with more direct experience and watch the additions to it. Watch how our mind gets carried away because we don't like to be with what's unpleasant or we want to grab hold of what's pleasant. I think most of us from practicing know that tendency. And it's there that we can see in those additions to experience how the self begins to arise. How when we keep on repeating something about I don't like this or that I shouldn't have that thought or I shouldn't have had that experience that we start to construct a sense of self. And I think the sense of self that the Buddha was talking to, talking about and criticizing was the kind of addition or overlay on experience. And we know how that can happen really easily and quickly. That I can be, I can um, have had a difficult encounter maybe an hour ago, an hour before you came here with a friend or a partner or someone at work and that person said something to me and I sit here in, out, in, out, and then I go off for 20 minutes complaining about what that person said and building something, getting a sense of how I'm gonna, what I'm going to say tomorrow. This is just a hypothetical example, 
no one actually here probably experiences you. You're all deep practitioners, and it's probably just some far in your past, right? Is that is that so? <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought so. And so, and so we can see how those those four those um, additions to experience start happening, and we can begin to see how they solidify a sense of self. They solidify myself in certain ways. One way that's helpful to look at that that sense of self as an overlay, and I think that's really what the Buddha is pointing to. He's saying that when we are most aware and most mindful and most present, we experience this flow of experience, this flow of thoughts and and sounds and sights and experiences of the body and of the various senses. And at various times we add to that and we, in a sense, we block that flow of experience with thoughts, with attempts to control, with grasping, with pushing away. We don't, we can't be with certain things and we try to block them. And it's out of that that the sense of self forms. And I want to give a few examples to try to make this a little clearer. Three examples of how that sense of a constructed self develops. And one of them I would call more the, psych, the psychological dimensions. A second has to do more with the social dimensions of self. And the third has to do with the way that we form a separation between ourselves and others. And it's particularly in giving attention to the way these constructions of self form in mindfulness that we really do this transformative work. And that's why in our practice, we first get some kind of grounding in a stability of mind. And then as we do that more, we can start to look at our patterns. We can start to look at our patterns of experience. And one of the patterns we look out for is that constructed sense of self as an overlay. And we can particularly see it when there is some kind of grasping after something or some kind of pushing away. So one form that the self appears in quite strongly, this kind of constructed and constricted self, constricted self as a blockage of the flow of experience, is in what we might call psychological fixations. And all of us have them. I believe anyone, I'll I'll describe what they are, and if you don't have them, you can come up here and teach. (laughs) Um, But what I'm meaning by that are ways that the flow of experience gets blocked and typically, historically, um, gets blocked for certain very basic reasons, uh, especially starting in childhood. So, so, for example, in childhood, at certain points, some experiences are too much for us. They might be too painful or too confusing, and we can't be with that flow of experience anymore. We sort of block it off. We, some of us may dissociate. And we basically develop defenses. It might be, as a young child, if one didn't feel like one was being taken care of by a parent, one felt afraid or abandoned even. Or if there was a part of one's experience, like uh, being angry a lot or being wild, that was really difficult for one's parents and they basically give us all sorts of messages don't go there and what happens to us inside we basically block the flow of experience and we learn how to avoid those experiences 
It might be of anger. It might be of feeling abandoned. And I think we know psychologically that when those come up as adults, we get scared, we bring out defense mechanisms and so forth. And we all have these kind of fixations that are basically blockages of the flow of experience, typically because there was some kind of pain or some kind of confusion. Is this making some sense? And this is really the subject of a lot of psychotherapy and a great deal of the best psychotherapy is very similar to mindfulness in that it takes us maybe back to these really difficult experiences, which maybe again, it may be that I've learned that um, I've learned that I can't be expressive and wild because it's uncomfortable for my parents. And I learned how to censor that. And so when it started to come up as a younger, as a child or as an adult, I say, I basically, it's pretty unconscious, of course. I pretty much say, we're not going there. <laughs> you know, and if I have friends that are, have those qualities, I might feel very uncomfortable. Is that making some sense? And so as a uh, in psychological work, we actually are taken often to learn how to be present with those experiences so that the flow of experience doesn't get blocked. One thing that we can look at in our meditation is we can look at where those kind of fixations arise. And we can do work in mindfulness that can really do very similar work than might be done psychologically to see where the fixations, it's really to become a student of one's own patterns, of one's own fixations, of the places that one gets stuck. And I really want to encourage that because one of the places, one of the, um, one of the times when our practice becomes more mature is when we get really interested in our um, places where we're stuck. Sometimes it's initially we want to really get stable and have peace and you know, get grounded. At a, le- a certain later level of maturity, we get really interested in our stuck places because those are the places where when we attend to them, we can heal and expand. You know, and then it makes sense because when we heal those areas, we can be with those when they come up with experience and the flow of experience doesn't keep, can keep happening. And in a sense, those fixations actually define a limited sense of self. You know, I am the wounded one. I am the one who has this problem. I am the one who is fearful of these experiences. And that's a certain pattern of self that we can attend to. Another pattern of self is related to the social conditioning. And that's where I might identify with my role as a mother, as a father, as a son or daughter. Uh, It might be also with my background. I might identify with being uh, a man or a woman, an African-American, a European-American. And I might do that in a way which also tends to construct a more fixated sense of self. I might grasp onto that identity. You know, there's nothing wrong with descriptively seeing these, these parts of oneself, but I can identify with my role with parts of who I am. If I'm a meditation teacher, I can get really hung up with thinking that, oh my gosh, meditation teachers are supposed to be perfect. So I shouldn't acknowledge any of my problems, right? And I can really identify with that role in ways which really are detrimental. Or I can identify with ways that I've internalized the messages of the society, you know? We all get tons of messages, right? 
about what it is to be this kind of person or that kind of person. You know, and it's very powerful. We're getting this stuff coming at us all the time, right? We're getting all these messages. This is good. This is bad. You should be this way because you're this person. You know, I had a very uh, powerful uh, experience reading some of the work of a friend of mine who has been blind since birth. And she wrote about the ways that she experienced people projecting on her because she was blind. You can imagine what it might be, right? Uh, it might be, oh, you must be so unhappy. You're, you're oh, such a pathetic state. You know, they wouldn't say that, but you can get the message, right? And she wrote about this. And she talked about how she would experience this all the time. And many of us experience different versions of that, right? She experienced this all the time. And for her own work, she had to see how she also formed a sense of self around what she was taking in from the society. And she had to work through that. So this is another area where we can really do that work of seeing where the sense of self gets constricted. So you see, it's getting a little more real now. Yeah. Oh, she just wrote a, an essay. She's a student. And she just wrote an essay and she sent it to me via email. Uh, but it, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll tell her to put it on the Internet and send an email to Gil or something. But it's really powerful. Yeah, uh, you can get a sense. It's really, really pretty, pretty intense. And so another way is that we form this separation between others where I might be comparing myself or I might think I'm better or worse than others. And part of the work of exploring the self is seeing all these places, is really studying them. So that's really the invitation with mindfulness to study all these. And as my experience is, as we study more of these, they tend to get transformed. We tend to be able to not be so fixated. And some of, the, some of the work with psychological fixations can take quite a while, as many of you know. But this is, the, this is kind of the vision of the work. And I want to I finish by asking the question, what is experience like when we've worked through these constructions of self? Because I think this is really what the Buddha was pointing to. He's pointing to what I would call this radiant quality of our being that comes through us and that we, I think, experience um, quite a lot, more than we might think. And these qualities of um, clarity and open heart and very, very down-to-earth qualities in a way. Clarity and open heart, compassion, and a sense of a flow of emptiness without holding on to anything. I want to talk a little bit about that in finishing and then leave a little time for us to talk together. And I really want to suggest that the practice that we can do is especially to first develop those qualities of concentration and mindfulness that let us look really carefully at experience. On that basis, we can start to see how we can be more directly with experience and we can watch how our minds add to experience. We can start to see how the self gets formed how these, this constructed sense of self gets formed. And we can also work with these different dimensions of the constructed self or the more solid self that come with psychological fixations or with social conditioning or with that sense of separation. And when we've worked through that, these beautiful qualities evolve, 
uh, really come out. I want to say that, first of all, when we work through that, there's still a sense of individuality. It's not like, I think the Buddha is not talking about being a blob, a spiritual blob. <clears throat> I'm not sure what that would look like, but, but, it, but I think he's talking, and when we meet people who've done a lot of spiritual practice, they all have kind of personalities. They all have individual qualities. Some of them are serious, and some of them are humorous, and some of them are quirky, and some of them are wild, and so forth. And, and yet, there, I think this qual- those qualities just come through without attaching to them or holding on to them. And I think we've had those kind of experiences, each of us, when, do you, have you had the experiences when you've just been so fully present, maybe with a friend or someone really close to you or doing the work that you love, so you've just been right in the situation without self-consciousness, without thinking about self, without comparing yourself to anyone, and there's just this immersion in the flow. I think we've all experienced things like that. I know I, I experienced that first, at least consciously. I think we kind of experienced that as kids, right? Something like that. But as adults, I remember experiencing that as a 20-year-old at college, like getting totally immersed in writing an essay. And I worked on it like for six hours or something. And it was like 3 a.m. when I finished. I had no sense of time. I had no sense of self. I was just fully there. I think musicians experience this when they're in the flow, you know. And in music, especially in jazz or an improvisational form, if you get self-conscious about the music, the magic is gone, right? Or we may experience that in art, or I think with people we really feel comfortable with, where we kind of let down the guards, and there's just this flow, and I don't have to think about how I'm appearing and how I am or whether I'm accepted. There's just that flow of experience. How many have experienced something like that? And I, I think that's a taste of this experience of not-self. And it's pretty nice, isn't it? It's a pretty wonderful experience. And I think a lot of the practice is deepening that, seeing what gets in the way of that, and then stabilizing it yet more fully. It's a lot of what we're about really here, I believe. And as we do that, these other qualities start to emerge, these qualities of clarity, of this quality of awareness. In the text of the Buddha, he talks about the, the mature practitioner as having luminosity coming out of one's being, a kind of radiance coming out. And it's actually in the text, it's tied to the quality of love and metta, that these, this quality of clarity is not separate from the heart. And that quality of clarity kind of comes out in this very, very beautiful way. And there's a quality of the flow in which there's a quality of what we might call emptiness, which is this sense of not, nothing being solid that we hold on to. And this sense of, another way of talking about it is this sense of interdependence. There's just this flow of experience with thing without anything being fixed in some final way. And so I think what we experience when we're in that kind of flow experience. And lastly, I think there's a quality of compassion of the heart that's there when we're really, when we're really full, when we're really present. Partly because when we're in that sense of flow, especially when it's mature and stabilized, we may have a sense that other people are locked into this, these constructed senses of self. And we can see the suffering connected with that and the kind of diminishing of that 
natural radiance. And we can feel that and there can be some compassion. We can be compassionate towards ourselves in a way also when that, when that is, um, when we see that, when we know, because we notice ourselves going back and forth. So let me close with, I think, uh, with a reading that can give a sense of that, of that quality. Let's see if I have that here. Maybe I'll give a few readings. The first is about that quality of awareness. This is from Achan Mahabua, who's a Thai teacher in the Thai forest tradition. This is about that quality of awareness. There is no escaping the truth. Whatever arises has to vanish. Whatever is true... Whatever is a natural principle in of itself won't vanish. The pure mind of awareness won't vanish. Everything of every sort may vanish, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. This vanishes, that vanishes, but the one who knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. It's really a pointing how that quality of awareness, separate from the sense of a constructed self, in this tradition is actually a connection with the sacred with what is called in the Buddhist tradition the deathless. That that moving beyond that limited sense of self opens us up to what is sacred and timeless and connects us in that way. Maybe one final one. This is from the poet William Blake which points to the same qualities. Points to that sense of the flow and the interconnection. To see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in the wildflower Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. That sense of quality of presence and fullness and flow. That's my way of unpacking some of that initial setup of confusion (laughs) about self and not self because I think it's really pointing towards these deep qualities of ourself but to get there we really have to work through identify with mindfulness know how they manifest in ourselves these constructions of self. And it's a beautiful work and it's wonderful to have many people to share it with. So I thank you very much for your attention and we have a little bit of time for, for discussion. So thank you very much. Please. Uh, the red light is on. Oh, it's working. Um, I think that's a fascinating project that you um, suggest, and there were a couple things. Uh, one of my first thoughts when you began the talk was I was trained in depth psychology, and uh, one of the post-Freudians, Otto Rank, he, he said um, maybe a very fine project is to make one's character and one's personality into a work of art. And you addressed that when you said, well, the goal is not to become a spiritual blob. So yeah. Yeah. I appreciated that. Um, and something that comes up for me, well, it's just happening in my life right now, and um wondering how your talk relates to it is, um, my landlord and I were kind of renegotiating the lease 
and I notice that she's bringing some self-interest things to the lease, and I'm bringing some of my self-interest things to the lease, and I really don't know how to do it. You know, I wasn't the one in the family that, you know, had a strong ego and a strong sense of setting boundaries and stuff, and it seems to be the exact opposite project almost of um, how do you have a self to to do your self-interest in the world, or how does that you know, mesh with not-self. And I'm also going through the same thing with Medicare and Social Security. You know, how do you protect your self-interest? Where does that fit in with the project? Where where does um, standing up for yourself or um, standing up to difficult landlords? Uh, The Tibetan teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, said, timidity is an ego trip. I think that's profound. <laughs> uh, but what it points to is that there actually are constructions of self, uh, not just in thinking well of ourselves, but also in some of the limitations that we have of ourselves. And so actually to work through some of that sense of self can bring forth more powerful qualities in you. That's interesting, isn't it? And, and that were, you know, were we doing work let's say, uh, one-on-one or together, it's definitely the case that it could be very skillful in the short run to do practices which sort of take you into a state where you're standing up and being strong and expressive. I mean, I've given kind of a map of development which may take 20 years or 10 years or something. So along the way, there are all these other steps that need to be taken and it can be really, really crucial to open up a territory where we, if we've been uh, not uh, of a nature where, we, where we're more um, passive or whatever language you want to use, that it can be really, really crucial to look at that because that is a structure of self also. And to look at that and to see if we can um, develop some of the more positive qualities because I think the qualities that I was mentioning at the end I, I just mentioned three I mentioned awareness and emptiness and compassion I would say there's also a tremendous amount of energy they're really what the Buddha talked about as the factors of enlightenment which are the factors that are present with an awakened being or with us as we awaken and those are those have qualities of courage qualities of energy of strength of being able to do what's necessary and so forth and so as you would stand up to your landlord, you would be developing the factors of awakening and deconstructing old structures of self. So. Yes. Thank you. Please, yeah. 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 I do. <laughs> uh, remember that I said that the deep resolution of these issues is experiential. And that's really, and that's, that's not a dodgier question. <laughs> I want, I'll come back to it. But I think really that the 
the exploration of the issues that really actually means the most to each of us is going to be experiential. That being said, there are different belief systems. And when we get into, um, you know, different lives and so forth, for most of us, there's not that much experiential base. And so it tends to be a matter of belief or, you know, for some people there is, but for most people there's not. Even the Dalai Lama said, I don't have that much experience of past lives. I don't know if he was being diplomatic or or what, but he did say that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, when you actually look deeper in Tibetan traditions, it gets way more complex than that. There are people, there are beliefs that individual beings reincarnate into 20 different other beings and that you can have multiple incarnations in yourself of multiple beings. So uh, anyway, let me see. So the I think if I would go back to the teachings of the Buddha, the the basic sense is that there is movement between lives and it's more like an energy than a sense of self. It's more like an energy that moves. But again, I want to really come back to the point that um, the point of of this teaching is really to see whether the structures of self and oneself are linked with suffering and what's helpful to, what kind of practice is helpful to transform the suffering linked with a sense of self. Yeah, please, yeah. I hope that was helpful. (laughs) Um, I just wanted to comment in response. The Dalai Lama came through this past year and gave a talk on the concept of dependent arising, which, and I'm not even close to an expert in any kind of Buddhism but as the way I understood it was that the only way you can define yourself is in respect to anything else Um, which I think is a little bit different than I mean I think it goes a little bit more along with what how you're describing Mm -hmm. self yeah it's really um, the, the main ways that the Buddha described the territory of the self was to look more at direct experience, at the flow of thoughts, feelings, emotions, feeling tone, experiences of the body and so forth, and to see the mix of all those without bringing in the concept of self. So the analyses that he gave did not have his analysis of experience, looked at a, tried to go down to a more direct experience and tried to see the sense of self, like I was saying, as a kind of an overlay. And so he did use models like dependent arising and others. Um, I think that's that's um, from a from a standpoint of practice, that's really a crucial point because it's really can we develop our concentration, our mindfulness, so that we can be with direct experience, and then we can start to see, okay, where is what is my experience of self like? What is where do, where does the self come in? How does the self come in when I? want when I'm in a situation and I feel embarrassed or self-conscious or I want something from someone or I want confirmation, I want to be called good or all these things. It's really to keep looking at that. And as we look at that, uh, things open up. Yeah. Uh, Maybe, okay, one more and then then second if we have time. Uh, When you reach this stage, uh, does one still have preferences or is that... Does one still have... Preferences. References? Preferences. Preferences. Or does that, is having a preference clinging or pushing away? Mm-hmm. Um, 
What would your answer be? Um, I think the the issue is always grasping. And the question is, does one grasp to preferences? Because I think preferences are, are very natural and in the flow. And the question is, do I grasp to them? I think, you know, the Dalai Lama, I know he likes to uh, work with cars, you know, take apart automobiles. Um, that's a preference. The question is, if he couldn't do that anymore, would he suffer? Uh, and in the model of dependent arising, it's taken that every <clears throat> moment of experience comes with a flavor of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And they're different for different ones of us. Some of us eat broccoli and there's a pleasant sensation that arises. (laughs) And some of us eat broccoli and there's an unpleasant sensation. Out of that, preferences arise. And it's, um, it's taken to be something that's almost beneath the level of consciousness. And so I think the key always is to look to whether there is attachment. The same, same thing is true with desire. The problem is not desire and wanting. It's whether we get attached. Because I can, we, we, we necessarily have preferences. You had a preference. Do I go to IMC this evening or not? I prefer to go. Was that a problem? Not necessarily. It would be a problem if you, something came up right before you were to come. And you start, and you, you know, you know, some, something happened. Maybe there was a need in your family or with friends or something, and you couldn't go, and you started suffering. I'm not going to be able to hear Donald tonight. (laughs) 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 And you started suffering, and it led to one thing, led to another. That would, so you see, you had a preference, but only if there's attachment is it really a problem. Yeah, that helps. So. I think we're actually at nine, so maybe we could, if you want to talk privately. So, uh, you know, we could probably talk about this theme, you know, maybe we could do a day long or something. We could probably take about a week or so with this, or three or, three or four hours, because um, I brought some notes and I didn't even look at them. <laughs> I was just because I wanted to give some time for, for interaction. And so it's, it's a beautiful theme, and then and a really important one. I think you can get that sense because those experiences of flow are very precious to us. The ones that, that every, almost everyone said I've experienced that where we, where we don't have a sense of self and there's a sense of fullness and often a sense of love and care and insight and the world starts flashing and it's kind of magical. And that's, uh, that's one of the directions we go with this practice. But to get there, we have to develop these qualities of concentration and mindfulness and then have this attention to these various structures of self that get in the way of that flow. That's really what I was saying. And the way to do that is to really look carefully at experience and see when they arise. And to see your own particular patterns really carefully and get really interested in them at the right time. So I'll just end by asking us to just, uh, maybe if you want to go inside just for a moment. And... To see if there was something that was helpful from this evening or some intention that you bring out of the evening.
And we close by remembering that we do this practice not just for ourselves, but for others. And may the fruits of our time together be offered out beyond these walls, beyond these boundaries, for the benefit of all beings. You can ring the bell now. Yes, it's right here.